Hi, I'm Billy Shore. Welcome back to Add Passion and Stir. It's our weekly conversation about food, passion, and making a difference in the world. And this week, food includes wine. We'll talk about many things on this podcast today, but we've got a special guest who I want to talk about wine with us, Sean Cassidy. Sean, I struggle when I think about how to introduce you. I'm assuming I'm not the only one who's been in that boat, singer, actor, writer, producer, storyteller, and now winemaker. How do you like to be introduced, Sean? Uh, all around novelty act, I think would probably be appropriate. That's fine. And, and father uh, of eight, right? Most important. Yeah, I have a lot of kids, a lot of kids. I, um, I'm happy not to be specifically defined. I've actually talked to my kids about that a lot. I think we, all of us fall into a trap by going, I made this. And so many of us are so many more things than one this. And I think I would rather be defined by my goals than what I've done. And it feels like you, you've, you've pushed yourself creatively to be more things than one this. And when you and I met, um, which I'm going to say is four or five years ago. Now we met at the home of Fred Steck, which I'm going to mention specifically because I know Fred will be <laughs> very happy that I did Appreciate <laughs> and he deserves credit for it. Uh, but I, of course, knew you from your earliest uh, days as a singer and performer. And it was only as we talked that I really got a full sense for all of your creative outlets, including your writing. And I know you're the uh, an executive producer on a, a really great NBC show called New Amsterdam, which has a new season kicking off. So I want to talk about that, too. But I also, you know, by luck of the draw or bad luck for you, good luck for me, we were we were seated next to each other. And I just immediately sensed this generosity of spirit and interest and curiosity about the work that we were doing at Share Our Strength and how our No Kid Hungry campaign was impacting kids. And now, just a few years later, you've come up with an incredibly creative and generous idea to further extend the reach of the No Kid Hungry campaign. And it's a, a wine called My First Crush. So I'm going to want to talk about uh, that too. But uh, talk a little bit about uh, just this creative push that you've had to keep going into new areas of, uh, and a lot of it's been around storytelling. And, and in fact, the wine, I, I feel like my first crush is, a, is an exercise in storytelling as well, in addition to being a great wine. And I should tell you, Sean, that uh, this is the first podcast I've ever done with a glass, a full glass of Pinot Noir in my hands. It's your Pinot Noir and it's delicious. So thank you for that. Well, thank you. I, I can't take credit for wine. That's Steve Clifton, our winemaker. I'll tell you a bit more about him in a minute. Um, but <clears throat> I mean, um, my first crush, um, aside from Anne Margaret and Bye Bye Birdie, and the list goes on, uh, my, my first crush, the brand is something I actually created, um, almost two years ago to serve as an umbrella for a number of different projects. It was initially born out of a request from a hotel in Las Vegas for me to develop a show for them. And while COVID has temporarily put that on hold, we're exploring a number of other opportunities in other cool areas, but specific to the wine. Uh, I, as you know, our family is fortunate to live in the wine country of Santa Barbara. Uh, my wife, Tracy and I have lived there for almost 10 years. We have four kids ranging in age from nine to 15 who go to public school here. And, and many of uh, the farmers and grape growers and winemakers who live in the area have become great friends. 
Now, I'm not a big drinker, but I have always loved wine. When I was a kid acting on the Hardy Boys television series, the executive producer would often take me out to dinner at this local French restaurant and he'd order bottles of Chateau Lafitte 1970. So, <laughs> and how old were you at the time? Uh, 18, 19, 20 years old. I was illegally introduced to some of the greatest wine in the world. And as time went on, I, I grew to appreciate many different wines from different regions, but especially the wines of California, my home state. So naturally, when we moved to the wine country and I got to know so many of the local winemakers, I wanted to support them. And I don't mean by drinking all of their product, but by introducing as many people as I knew to all of the beautiful wines that come from our backyard. And for a number of years, I thought about doing my own label. But again, we've been raising four kids and I work full time as a writer, producer and television. And I recently went on the road with a new live music and storytelling show, which is something I hadn't done in, oh, 40 years. So I've been busy. But then COVID came along and I saw a lot of our friends, these same farmers and growers and winemakers suddenly really hurting. And I saw families, local families, whose kids went to school with our kids also hurting. And then I saw our schools close and I saw our restaurants close and I saw the tasting rooms close. And I knew a lot of people were gonna be in trouble. Now, I honestly think I have the best job in the world. And that belief has only been buttressed during the pandemic because while almost every other business has been hit extremely hard, television writers for the most part have continued to work. As you said, I'm an executive producer and writer on this great show, New Amsterdam. And every day during quarantine, our writing staff has continued to meet via Zoom and break stories and write scripts. And after initially shutting down production in New York, filming resumed in October of last year. New Amsterdam's a hospital show, and much of our storytelling this season is focused around the effects of this pandemic on our characters and the city, which initially, as you know, was the epicenter of the outbreak in America. But I'm only sharing this with you because while I was feeling incredibly blessed to have this job that is actually documenting these crazy days we were all living through, I was also feeling real concern for all of these people in our community who I've come to love. Hmm. And the mantra, ironically, of our lead doctor on the show is, how can I help? And that was the question I kept asking myself, what could I do to help our community now? What could I do to help the families I knew were hurting? And in the middle of thinking about all of this, my head spinning, Steve Clifton calls me. Steve is a neighbor. Our, our kids are great friends. And Steve is one of the best winemakers in California. He's won awards all over the globe. I ask him how he's doing. He says it's been rough. Much of his business comes from selling high-end wine to high-end restaurants. Wolfgang Puck is one of his biggest clients. But guess who's not buying any wine right now? Restaurants, because they're all closed. So I asked Steve how much wine he's got in barrels, and he says a lot. And I asked him what varietals, and he says all kinds. And then I asked him if he might be interested in doing a label right now with me, his wine, my brand. I choose the varietals, and we give a portion of the proceeds to an organization I know is going to help feed a lot of kids. Steve immediately says he's in. I say, I'll call you back tomorrow. I have to call my friend Billy Shore. And I emailed you. And I told you what I was thinking, and you graciously said you were all in, and here we are. Our yeah, first. It didn't. It didn't. It didn't take me long to say that, did it? <laughs> no, it didn't. And I was so gratified because I'm, I'm certain you must get asked to do or to partner up or whatever with all kinds of people. And again, I'm not a winemaker. I'm a wine appreciator. I live in the wine country. I'm a big fan of Steve's. 
But I just thought, here's an opportunity to not only help the folks I live with, but to help all of these kids. And one of the things I remember from our first dinner, you said to me, one in seven kids are probably going to bed hungry. Well, now post-COVID, it may be one in four. And I know families, our whole, you know, our entire area, our valley where we live is not all wealthy people. I know there are kids who are getting their main meal at school. So when the schools closed, it was like, this is nuts. We And we can do something. And it just felt like a win-win-win. And we now have a Pinot Grigio, a Syrah, Pinot Noir. They're all almost sold out. And we're introducing a new a new wine, a Pinot Noir-based rosé, just in time for Valentine's Day. So, so far, so good. And thank you. Well, thank you. And just before we lose the thread of this, what's the best way for people to find the wine? Someone's listening to this and, and this podcast's over. How can they get their hands on the wine? I'm glad you asked. Uh, if you want to try the wine, you can order it at myfirstcrushwines.com. On Valentine's Day, I'm going to be doing a wine-focused Q&A on my Facebook page and pouring a glass or two. So if you don't have a date, or even if you do, bring them along, have a glass of wine with me or an apple juice if you don't drink, and ask me whatever you like, and I'll try and answer as many questions as I can without thoroughly embarrassing myself. So that's you're doing that on Valentine's Day itself? On Valentine's Day itself. Great, great. Um, so the, the wines are delicious. You were kind enough to send me some, and I know that many uh, share our strength, uh, local organizations and uh, virtual events that we do are uh, going to be featuring the wine. So uh, we really are grateful for that. I, I posted, and I'm sure you, this, you, you know, you've seen a lot of this, but uh, I posted on some of our social media channels, Facebook and Instagram and Twitter and so forth, um, a, a picture of the wines on our dinner table and said they had come from Sean Cassidy, that he was working with Steve Clifton to to make and sell these wines and that they were called my first crush. And of course, uh, what I got back were first dozens and then hundreds of responses uh, from mostly women uh, who said, oh my God, he actually was my first crush. And I say this as a way of saying that you're, for some people, you're kind of frozen in time uh, from that time when you were singing, performing, traveling the world. And then you mentioned uh, what I think has been like a 39 year or 40 year hiatus from that. And I'm sure you've talked about this before, but what led you to stop and what led you to start again? Well, to what you've mentioned earlier, we all have a first crush. That's a deeply emotional memory that never leaves us. You know, and if I was anyone's first crush, no accounting for taste, but okay, cool. But in my case, it was Anne Margaret when my mother took me as a little, little tiny kid to see Bye Bye Birdie. And and there she was in that dress. And later, Julie Newmar as the Catwoman and Catherine Ross and Butch Cassidy, and Jacqueline Bissett. I mean, the list goes on. And the crush doesn't have to be a celebrity. For me, it was a little girl who sat in front of me in second grade who often wore her hair up in a bun. And I just stare at the back of her neck like a doofus. But I'm kind of pathetically romantic, as my wife often reminds me. So, yeah, the the... the the name of the wine is not an accident. There's a little irony there and self-awareness there, hopefully. And I do have an odd resume. I started as an actor. I, the Hardy Boys was my second audition. I got the job right out of high school. I was thinking of going to college, and then I got this television show, and I had already started making records. I was uh, recording since I was 17, and the records were being released overseas. But then when the show came on, Warner Brothers, uh, wisely, I guess, 
sort of cobbled together these singles I'd been putting out in Europe and put a, an album out. And the album was a huge success. It was the biggest selling solo debut in history until I think Whitney Houston came along. Um, and, you know, for a lot of 18 year old kids, none of that is good news. Um, the behind the music stories that we've all seen and the, you know, the arc of the teen idol that doesn't end well is usually the story. Um, and the thing that people ask me, and maybe you even ask me early when they meet me after, you know, hello, second or third question is like, why are you like relatively normal or why are you even alive? Truthfully. Um, and, and my show is deals with a lot. It's a sort of a survival story. And, and I think the only answer I have, because I, I'm really not certain other than I come from a family of people in show business and I'd watched my father highs and lows. I'd watched my mother, Shirley Jones, uh, you know, with her stuff and my brother, David, who'd had a very similar trajectory, uh, seven, eight years before mine, and he did not deal with it well. So these were all cautionary tales that I had the benefit of learning from. And when the teen idol star began to fade and, you know, teen idol by virtue of its name is short shelf life. Um, and, and in my case, I mean, literally a, I was at the end of AM radio and AM radio like disappeared for playing pop music overnight. And then so did all my records. So I could have, you know, gone into the darkest of dumps and, you know, worked, clung to try and come back, come back, come back, which a lot of people said, don't worry, you can always come back. And I was like, I don't know, man. I don't know that I want to come back. I wanted to go forward. I wanted to do new stuff. And so I was really lucky in that my early success afforded me like 10 years of staying home and raising young children. I got married really young and I, and I read books. I just put myself through Lincoln College, you know, and read everything I could get my hands on. And I fell in love with the theater and plays. And I worked a lot in the theater and worked with some really good playwrights. And by 29 or 30, I was writing pretty consistently. And I sold my first script shortly thereafter and kind of never looked back. I've been a writer in TV for 25 years and I've loved every minute of it. Um, but this little, you know, three, four year window, as you said, is how people, when they hear my name, often think of me. Um, and again, you know, no one is what they do. And, and I, so I never felt like, I, oh, I have to hang on to that. I was happy to let that go and recognize that that was a part of my experience. But, you know, when I was 11 to 16, I was a kid magician in Los Angeles who did like birthday parties all over the town. And I, I actually performed magic longer than I made records. But on my resume, it doesn't say boy magician. <laughs> a boy magician would be as valid as pop star and equally ridiculous now because I'm neither of those things. A television writer. But even I'm reluctant to call myself that because I love all creative endeavors that aim for a positive result. And I don't necessarily mean a financially rewarding result. I mean a life enhancing result for me and for anyone else who may benefit from the endeavor. And guess what? That sounds a lot like what you do, Billy. Well, uh, yes, I think so. But I'm also, I'm, I'm so struck, Sean, by the fact that you made a series of choices that, as you said, most people in your position at that age don't make. And uh, I don't mean this facetiously. Were you just wise beyond your years at a young and tender age? Did you have somebody that put their arm around you and said, hey, let me, let me give you some advice. I mean, how did you navigate that? 
Where did that come from? Was it inside you? I think partially it was. I was an old soul. And again, I was never, um, I, I only credit this. All, all I can think is because, I mean, most people, most people, anyone who has an experience similar to mine, and there aren't that many, um, uh, usually come from, I mean, let's, okay, start with the king, start with Elvis. Elvis comes from Tupelo, little family, no money. Nobody's seen anything like Elvis in the family. Elvis becomes Elvis, and suddenly his whole dynamic in the family is turned upside down. He's the guy with the money. He's the guy with the name. He's the guy that his father is now looking to him to buy the new Cadillac. That was never the case in my family. In fact, in my family, like, oh, everyone's in plumbing. Oh, you're going into plumbing? Good for you. So what? <laughs> Big deal. So, and I, and I, again, my personality is such, I'm not really, I don't know if there's an actor type, but I am, I, I am much more internal. I love writing. Um, I love the journey of writing. I love writing for actors, having been an actor who's had good scripts and bad scripts. I, I certainly like to think that I'm helping actors find their way uh, and, and love giving them the joy of discovering a great character or a clear motivation or whatever. But because I came from a family of performers and because, you know, everyone was so, my mother won an Academy Award when I was five and David was like the biggest star in the world when I was in junior high school. So just getting the monkey off my back of not being known as someone's kid or someone's brother might've been a, the biggest part of my own drive to be successful as an entertainer. But once I, that happened, I didn't need it at all anymore. Didn't need it. And so when it was going away, I, I didn't fight to keep it. I wasn't like, no, no, I must be jump Justin Timberlake now. No, let it go. Let it go. Let it go. And I did. And, but again, there were people around me saying, oh, you're a genius. This is great. It's a good career move. Let them forget you. And then you'll come back. Well, no. Uh, but although, again, this began with, you know, 39 year hiatus. Yes. Two years ago, I'm sitting around. A lot of people are saying, hey, you should write a book. You should write a... So I start writing stuff down and I realize I don't want to write a book. I want to go on the stage in small venues where I've never played except as an actor in the theater and talk to people and engage with people. And I think it started about 11 years ago, Oprah was doing her last season and I'd never been on the show and they'd asked me more than once to be on the show. And I, I just sort of made a pact with myself that I would never do memory lane interviews. I would do interviews if I had a new show coming on. And then, then I'd of course talk about my early life, but just being there for the sake of, you know, what was it like to sing to do run run wasn't interesting to me, but Oprah's and her people pushed, pushed, pushed. And my wife who was a big Oprah fan said, Oprah's calling, you're going to Chicago and I'm going with you. <laughs> All right. So we went and I did the Oprah show in her last season and I walked out on the stage and there were all these incredibly lovely 45-year-old women mostly, some men too, but, you know, and I looked at them and I basically recognized the same look in their eyes I'd seen at Madison Square Garden in 1979 when they were 11. It was like they were seeing Santa Claus. It was like this part of them that had been lying dormant was awakened again. And it was so beautiful 
And again, I'm a romantic and I can get sappy. And it really touched me. And it made me realize that my sort of hiding away, which I did do kind of deliberately, uh, was cutting off a part of my life experience that I'd shared with them. It was not the same experience, but it was a shared experience. And I missed it. And I realized I could have it again and it wouldn't be the same. I could do a live show and it wouldn't be, here he is trying to come back and wear satin pants and sing to do run run. I could go out and actually talk to these people and reflect on the experience we shared and kind of meet each other again on a cruise ship 40 years later. And that was my hope anyway. I didn't know if that would land. So I wrote this show that was kind of a one man show. And then I shared it with some people and they said, well, no, they're going to want you to sing more than you're singing right now. And you're going to need a band. <laughs> really? I'm going to need a band. I don't want to do like a concert. Show. I want to do like a theater show. Like a, well, can it be a hybrid? Of the, and, and it ended up being exactly that. I hired a wonderful band, some of whom are, are very good friends, were good and are all very good friends now. And we rehearsed at my house and we went out and did these tiny, tiny, tiny little shows, which I'd never done in my whole life. Started one at a winery nearby and then played bigger places. And, and it, it was a tremendous success. And it was so gratifying for me and for the audience. And once I done that, I sort of opened this whole new world up of, God, I can perform and, and it feels true to what I do now because it's mostly storytelling. What kind, much, of things do you, what kind of things do you talk about? I'm not asking you to give us a free show or a preview, but just what, what kind of topics do you try to engage on? Well, I talk about stories behind the songs. I talk about, you know, again, the question they all, you know, how did you live through it? Um, and I talk about the kind of out-of-body experience of it. And I talk about the full circle of it. And And one of the things I said at the end of the show is you all think you came here to see me, but the truth is I came here to see you. I came to see them because I missed them. And I wanted to see how their lives had gone. I mean, again, it's like you're seeing people bookended. Not that they're all old. They're not. They're, I mean, they're relatively young. And, and But, you know, it's a long time. And, and the experience is, you know, I'll never forget Ann-Margaret. And, and I called Julie Newmore to have lunch with me. When I was at Universal, I mean, happily married, not, I mean, and she's, you know, my mom's age, but I, I, I just wanted to meet her and have lunch with her and say, you, like, you were in my head and my heart for like two years when I was ten, and and it meant something to me. And so many of these, I'm actually choking up. This is how pathetic I am. Um, so many of these women, mostly women, but men too, uh, write me now mostly at Facebook and, and tell me that my record or my concert or my poster, whatever it was, was often life saving for them because they were in a dark house or there was abuse or there was bad alcoholism or whatever was going on in their house. It was an escape. And it's easy to, it's easy to be cynical about, that experience for some people, not me, but, and it's easy to dismiss it as, oh, it's just pop fluff, but it, it means more and it resonates and it stays with people. So, um, that's what my show's about.
So at the time that you were making those songs and performing them, I'm sure you knew they had a power, but I assume you couldn't have known they meant what you've just described, right? That only comes with time I'm not sure age. they did. I don't think they did then. I mean, I I talk about the, the whole idea of a teen idol, I think has so little to do with the performer. You're interchangeable. It's about the time. It's about the shared experience of the audience. It's about their collective experience embracing this one thing because they didn't know who I was. They just saw me. I'm a cute kid and nice poster and good hair and whatever. But, you know, it was their experience of sharing this innocent affection for someone that they didn't know. And now, um, because I've opened myself up, which I never did, um, and I, I have a very mixed feeling about social media. I would never be on any social media had Amazon not insisted when I had a show on Amazon that, you know, I needed to, you know, tweet along with the episodes and do all that stuff. So, so I started doing it to promote my work now. And then like shows canceled, it's like suddenly, oh, it's like you're dating a girl. What are you going to just break up with her? Cause you don't have a show on anymore. <laughs> you know? So, so I, I just kept talking. And then frankly, when, when the pandemic hit, and I knew I wasn't going to be working, I had no reason I wasn't going to be touring. Tours canceled. So what do I have to talk about? Why should I be talking to anyone? Why shouldn't I just stay home and focus on, you know, my family and keeping everybody safe? But I saw and felt so much um, sadness and despondency uh, and fear from a lot of the people, adults that were following me. And I decided that I wanted to and again, my first crush is part of this for sure, but I wanted to uh, reach out to them and remind them, even as I was reminding myself, that there's still a lot of great stuff going on and the sun is coming up tomorrow. And we have many things to be grateful for that don't have anything to do with money or stature or position or fame or uh, a pandemic. And I started doing these Sunday, you know, little gratitude lists, things that meant something to me, my coffee in the morning and the tree in the yard and the dog. And it started that small and it grew and it grew and it grew. And, you know, I don't have a, a large following by Beyonce standards, but I have like 100,000 Facebook followers. And that number doubled this year, having nothing to do with me, you know, singing or acting or even New Amsterdam. It was just talking and engaging and and and, and feeling a, a a connection that brightened my life to share it and clearly uh, affected a lot of people in a positive way. Um, and and I think that my first crush in the wine is an outgrowth of that. And and I feel like you know everything you've said, and I'm not trying to put words in your mouth, uh, but I think my first crush is so emblematic of it. Uh, is really about uh, something that's very important to me and to the, the work we do at Share Our Strength, which is it's about sharing strength. You've you've consistently found ways to to share your strength, whether it's what you've meant to people and putting yourself back out there, or now this wine, which is a as a, as I mentioned includes storytelling and brand building and um, the, the element of you being able to be behind it and and publicize it. Um, and you should say a little bit about how the wine benefits uh, share our strength. I, I believe we get $2 a bottle that goes to the No Kid Hungry campaign. 
That's um, me, buddy. Two buck Chuck. Two buck Chuck. Uh, yeah, but that's pretty. Chuck. That's pretty significant. That adds up fast. Uh, and that's um, that's well, it, that's it an actually, unusually significant donation per bottle. Well, I'm I'm happy to hear that because it didn't sound like much to me. But when I, I you know, take the Pinot Noir for example. Um, that's a $55 bottle of wine anywhere that Steve is making that we're selling for $32. And I, in my own ignorance about actually how the wine business worked, I, you know, I just assumed uh, this would be great and easy and we'll sell lots of wine, but it's actually very difficult to make any kind of profit in the wine business. Um, but I think if, if the wine continues to be as successful as it already has been, uh, Steve, direct to consumer, and that's how we're selling it now. Although it will end up being in some some restaurants when restaurants open again, and and nice wine shops and so forth, and as you say, events. I think a lot of events. Um, I, I think the 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 larger sale of it uh, is very promising, and the money will add up. And I, you know, I'd like to do this for twenty years, and I hope it becomes Newman's own, and you guys, you know, feed eight million children because. Steve made a good wine. Uh, it'd be it'd be incredible. It's got uh, every bottle has uh, the No Kid Hungry uh, name and logo on the back of it. Um, and I read on your website this very elegant statement that said, "For me, a great bottle of wine is alchemy. It's a little heart, a lot of soul, some serious skill, and often the pure blind faith of, dare I say, a <laughs> first crush." Mm-hmm. Yep, love that. Just, just perfect. That's how I feel. Uh, have you got a favorite among the wines? I know that's probably not a fair question. <clears throat> well, it's not. Um, I, and and truth, the truth be told, it depends on the mood, depends on what I'm eating. I do love them all. Um, I, I think right out of the bottle when I tasted the Syrah, I was just so knocked out because it, uh, it's just ready to go right now. I think the Pinot Noir is better when it's opened or even decantered for 15 or 20 minutes. But these are wines that can continue to mature and evolve for 12 to 15 years, if you can wait that long to drink them. But you can drink them now, and it's beautiful. And as I say, you know, Steve is selling these wines at far less than he could get. But the objective is to sell a lot of them and uh, make it something that is really a significant contribution to No Kid Hungry. Well, my family's had all three, the Syrah, the Pinot Grigio, and the Pinot Noir. We're waiting for the rosé that comes out on Valentine's Day. This podcast will come out before Valentine's Day, so hopefully people will will know about it. And I can't say mm-hmm. enough about them. They're, they're delicious wines. They really are. Thank you. Well, I, I'm, I'm so uh, happy about that. And, you know, it's, it's something I obviously consider. There's a lot of winemakers in the Valley who are good friends. And I could have uh, probably done this with a number of them. But Steve did happen to call, and it did happen to land at the perfect moment. And I have to say, he is one of the best, not just in uh, Santa Barbara wine country, but in 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 California and all over the world. He's extraordinary. And it, it, I'm telling you, I am more proud when you say, I love that wine with your label on it, than if you say, I saw your show last night, I love the script you wrote. Boy, that was great. I mean, <laughs> that means a lot, but this is new. And it, and it, and there's so much romance with wine and so much, you know, it's, it's so, um, it's so tactile to me, the idea that it's part of the earth we're living on and that these vines may have been planted before we were born and yet they're still producing. And 
and you know causing people to gather and share highlights of their life it's just it's so it's it's great and and steve is just exceptional at, at doing it uh and and uh the rosé yes we're coming out with a rosé and this rosé is the best one i've ever had it's it is made out of the pinot noir grapes that grow in the santa rita hills which is one of the greatest places to grow uh these grapes in the country and he's just made an exceptional wine that he's selling at a very good price and we're going to release it i think i think you'll be able to order it uh by the time this um podcast airs which is great and maybe podcast. some people will have it uh, by valentine's day and we can talk about it and share it together uh, now, as as we've noted a couple of times now, you've you've got a lot of creative pursuits going on at the same time. You've also got a, a new season of New Amsterdam on NBC. I think it's the third season. Is that correct? That's coming. It is uh, New Amsterdam. Um, as I said, I mean, this is a, a, a this is the best experience I've ever had on a television show. I did not create New Amsterdam. It was created by the brilliant David Schulner uh, and the you know the lead doctors. Uh, main uh, tagline is how can I help? How can I help the system that's broken, this healthcare system? How can I help people who don't necessarily have the money to come to a hospital? It's based on uh, on Bellevue in New York, which, uh, as you may know, is the largest and oldest public hospital in the country. And they have a courtroom and they have a school and they serve Rikers Island. And if the president gets in trouble or anyone from the UN, they go there. So it's like a city. And we have uh, worked uh, extensively with the people there and kept in communication with them through the pandemic. So the new season feels uh, even more uh, gratifying and urgent. And it's not a documentary. I mean, we're still doing character stories and individual stories that are not about COVID, but the PTSD of COVID, the effects of COVID, the loss of COVID uh, in terms of people and and it has affected everyone and we're going to deal with it. And the show comes back on in March. It's a show, a series been picked up for five years, which is remarkable. It's a hit. I don't have a lot of those on my resume. Um, so I'm, I, I, you know, I'm the luckiest man you've ever talked to. Uh, I'm starting to, I'm starting to believe that I, I had a feeling you were, but uh, you've also, um, worked hard for it. You've made a lot of your own luck, as they say. Uh, Sean, for, for people who don't know what uh, an executive producer role is, describe that a little bit. Sure. This is, again, I, I was fortunate. The, the first pilot script I wrote in 1994 was a, a, a script called American Gothic, which we sold to CBS, and it got picked up, which was miraculous. And the show came on, and it was a big deal. It, it got a lot of very positive reviews. It was very dark. Uh, scary, and the hero was a very dark anti-hero, and this was before Sopranos or Shield or any of the uh, you know the anti-heroes that are certainly in vogue now. So it lasted about ten minutes on CBS on the Touch by an Angel Network at the time, but I was the supervising producer, which was the the only title they could give me. Sam Raimi was the executive producer, and Sam was kind of the overseer of everything on the show. But after that show, I became what's known as the showrunner on every show I created after that, uh, which, and as the showrunner, you're also the executive producer and you're in charge kind of of everything, of hiring the directors, of hiring the writing staff, casting the show, making sure the trains run on time. Uh, a big part of the job is fear management. You know, your network is giving you a lot of money 
to make these shows and you don't want to screw them and go over budget. Um, it's like building a house, I think. And, and as a showrunner, you're the architect of the house and you're also the main construction foreman of the house. And, oh, you're uh, often trying to keep the bank at bay, which is the studio. But on New Amsterdam, I did not create the show. <clears throat> as I said, David Schulner did and Peter Horton, who is a wonderful executive producer who does a lot of directing on our show. Uh, they are running it. And David and I had run a show a few years back. We both have deals at Universal Television and uh, we kind of made a deal with each other a, a few years ago. We each wrote a pilot and then we said, if your pilot goes, I'll work on it with you. And if mine goes, you work on it with me. Well, his went and he called me and I said, I'd love to. And I've had an experience like I've never had because I didn't grow up uh, on a staff on a show. My first show sold and I was kind of in charge which was a bad way to learn how to be a good showrunner because I made a lot of mistakes. David is an excellent showrunner. I've learned more about showrunning from David and Peter Horton than I ever did doing my own shows, and I've done a lot of them. Uh, and the writing staff uh, to a writer are brilliant and wonderful people and wildly diverse in terms of not only ethnicity, but background and storytelling and style. And it's like working with a symphony orchestra and everybody plays their instrument perfectly. Mm -hmm. So it's a learning experience and, and I love learning new stuff still always. And when does the new season start? Early March. I don't have the exact date, but early March on NBC. Got it. Got it. Uh, and then as we were talking about your, um, your storytelling on stage, uh, once the pandemic is under control or hopefully behind <laughs> us, uh, you'll be back out there. I will, uh, but in this you know age of living with uncertainty uh, and trying to get comfortable <laughs> with a um, loss of control, <clears throat> it's sort of a great unknown question. I had many, many shows uh, moved from last May to this May, but as you probably know, the concert business, theater business, personal appearance business, all have been hit terribly hard and many shows are being pushed or canceled. Many venues may vanish entirely and fees are being renegotiated to accommodate safety protocols, less seats. So the bottom line is it's made me, uh, it's made it very difficult to plan any kind of tour, which is what I'd had in mind before. And because I've been concerned about potentially putting my band members health at risk, because not everyone may have been fully vaccinated by May or June, which is when I'm supposed to go out. I've decided on, and I actually just talked to all of them about this. I've decided if I go out, that early, I'm going to go alone. I'm just mm -hmm. going to go without a band. It's just going to be me and the piano and a guitar, which is kind of what I originally envisioned the show to be. And maybe it'll be a little bit more storytelling than I did a year ago and maybe a few more intimate ballads and hopefully enough jokes to cover my wanting musicianship. Um, but that version will be fun too, and it'll be different. And it, again, it will be more perhaps about connection. Like, oh, we just went through this. How's everybody doing? And when the world opens up again, I'll call my band and we'll play some bigger rooms again and blast Hey Dini and do a run to the heavens. Well, you know, as you talk about how unpredictable everything is now, you may, you may recall I've, I've had this fantasy, one of uh, a great Share Strength supporters and 
become a good friend is Hugh Jackman, who was going to bring the Music Man to Broadway. And um, I know that show. <laughs> and, well, yes, I know you do. And I had uh, emailed you early on to say, uh, my wife, Rosemary, and I wanted to take you and Tracy to opening night because you wanted us to come. And I thought, obviously, because your your mother, Shirley Jones, was in the original, that would be a, a really fun night out for all of us. And uh, it got postponed and postponed and postponed. And now, now they're looking at February of 22. Um, and it was, you know, it's just... It's tragic what's happened to theater and, you know, obviously so many industries in our country and we still don't know. We still don't know. It's uh, you got to get comfortable not knowing. It's a, a Buddhist exercise, I think. Uh, what have you done to just kind of personally navigate the pandemic? How have you kept yourself healthy, sane, <laughs> mentally healthy, physically healthy? Well, as I said, I am extraordinarily lucky in that I was able to continue doing the job I'd been doing pre-pandemic without much change. I, you know, I live about uh, an hour and 45 minutes from Los Angeles and Universal and our writing staff would be in LA and we'd meet there for four days a week. So I had an apartment in LA until last March when I realized I wouldn't be going into LA. And I have an office at Universal, probably has a rotting half-filled cup of coffee on the desk from the last time I left. Um, but when the show resumed and the writing staff resumed and they said, we're all going to be doing it via zoom, I was like, okay, not so terrible. I get to stay home and spend more time with my family. And it's actually been very, um, efficient. We've gotten a lot more done in less time, but I've missed being with people in person and to how it's affected me and my family. I would say, um, my greater concern has been about the effect it would have on my wife, who is way more social than I am. I, you know, I'm a writer, so I tend to sit in dark rooms looking at screens and very happy to do it. And I don't need to see people as much, but she does and has. And my kids, I'm, I, our kids, nine to 14, my son, uh, 15. Now, Caleb plays baseball and he wants to play college baseball. So we're fortunate in that the Valley, the Santa Ynez Valley has had up until just a few weeks ago, very few cases. And Santa Barbara County was relatively uh, unhit in, until also recently. But LA is, is in such terrible shape right now. It's, uh, you know, it was inevitable it would spill over. So um, every day is a um, kind of risk assessment and, and the trade-off. Because look, I, I wrote an episode of uh, New Amsterdam about the epidemic of loneliness that is a byproduct of quarantine and about all the people who are dying because they're afraid to come in for the hospital to get a, a treatment that would easily save them because they were afraid of getting COVID. So, you know, the, the uh, collateral damage to this is real and the emotional collateral damage to children is also real if you're not handling it well. And so we have tried to balance it, you know, Marin, our nine-year-old is in dance, but the dance class is outside and she's in a mask six feet apart. And Lila, who is uh, who has a horse and who does uh, barrel racing and rodeo, has gone to rodeo, but outside, away, masks, da 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 and has continued doing that. Uh, and, and Caleb has continued to play baseball with a mask, without people in the stand. I mean, and so far that's been great. I do worry, though, that one day, it, very soon, one of them may come home with COVID. And Tracy and I have talked about it at length. And, you know, I'm not 65 and I don't have 
uh, any underlying health stuff. I've had seasonal asthma related to allergies, but I'm sure I'd be fine. And I'm sure she'd be fine. She's younger than I am, but I don't want it. Yeah. And I know a lot of people who've had it who are younger than me and they've got lingering stuff. So, but I don't want my kids, you know, I don't want my daughter's sixth grade graduation to be canceled because of it. I want her to have this experience. And look, there's upsides. We've spent a lot more time together as a family. I think we appreciate, as I write about on Sundays on Facebook, the simple things more. Um, we realize what we don't need. But again, I'm, you know, in a, in a really um, fortunate position that a lot of people are not in. And if you are an essential worker, or if you are, you know, two parents working uh, at Walmart or whatever it is, and your kids are being sent home from school, I don't know how you're making it work. And that bothers me. Yeah, it's, it's, I mean, we know this, it's just unbelievably stressful for a lot of families. We have a young staff at Share Our Strength. Uh, we have many uh, moms and dads at home with young kids. Um, and it's, uh, it is, it is just really hard. And one thing you should know, and I think you'll appreciate as somebody who's been a supporter of ours uh, for a long time before uh, the My First Crush idea, I know you've been to a number of our LA dinners and so forth, is one of the things that you've enabled us to do and that your ongoing support is going to enable us to continue to do is it's been so important, obviously, to find ways to either ensure that kids who aren't in school but dependent on school meals are still getting them or that schools as now uh, the CDC and other guidance is suggesting that maybe schools, at least for younger kids can open. Uh, we've got to find ways to make sure that those kids uh, who in many cases depend on the schools for their meals, certainly for their breakfast and lunch can get them in a safe way. And so share our strength has been engaged in a really for us an unprecedented massive campaign to basically retrofit the school feeding capacity of the nation's public school system. We've, made $66 million in grants uh, over the last five months of 2020 to fund thousands, wow. literally thousands of school districts, community organizations, YMCA's, Boys and Girls Clubs, whatever it's taken to replace those meals. But a lot of it has been physically retrofitting the public schools. And uh, I just want everybody to know that every $2 that comes in from uh, a bottle of My First Crush is going to go to the same place. So uh, the impact is real. It's tangible. Uh, you can you can look at a child in a school that's been fed and know that it's because of what you've done. And I just want to say thanks, Sean. Thank you, Billy. Uh, it You know, there's a lot of charities out there and we all get approached to do a lot of stuff. But it, the, the, the big takeaway uh, Tracy and I took from our first evening with you and Rosemary was not only how genuine you both were and um, how passionate you were about it, but how uh, complicated and simple it all seemed like you, I felt like just doing a little bit could literally save a kid without a lot of red tape in between. And that's a big difference. And I also like that you liked cycling because I don't know if you know this, but my second show after the Hardy Boys was breaking away. I do know that, of course. And, well, it's you know we're going to get back to our chef cycle rides, and you might be on one. And uh, I appreciate you uh, what you say about our, our our first time together. I would guess uh, most people would say that uh, Rosemary and Tracy are the ones who are sincere, authentic, and Sean and Billy, yeah, maybe maybe almost. But uh, we're we're lucky to have uh, such amazing partners. We play catch up. 
Yeah, exactly. Uh, well, I, I've got to let you go. I, I could talk all night, especially because I'm in my den with them. I'm getting ready to pour my second glass of your Pinot Noir. So I'm, I'm quite comfortable. But the last thing I wanted to ask you, and it's just as we're, I've just been thinking about it as we've been talking, because, you know, one of the things that's interesting about hearing you talk is, it seems to me, is the role that kind of community plays in your life. You've talked about, you know, the community of uh, Santa Barbara and San Inez and your kids in the public schools, and even the community of like when you go out on stage and you look into the eyes of uh, the, the people who are in the audience and you know there's something that's uh, kind of bonded you all. And that's such an unusual uh, value for somebody who also could be traveling the world, uh, you know, pre-pandemic or post-pandemic and did travel the world. And you've just got, you've, it seems like you've got this almost palpable, tangible value for community that, that you cherish. I do. And I, I think it's because I don't know when it dawned on me, but I just, I discovered that none of us are all that unique. And I don't mean that in a bad way. I mean that our, you know, my story is your story is the story of the people who I see in the audience. It's, you know, our, our journeys have different details, but the experiences, this experience, this shared experience for good, bad, and everything in between can be bonding or it can be divisive. And there are certainly those who would make it divisive. We've seen it. We've, you know, had an assault on truth for the last four years and uh, many would divide us. But I would argue that there is more that we have in common than we have different. And there is more in this experience that can ultimately uh, bind us together and help us through it together. So that's my uh, wine glass half full, if you will. Well, I'll take it. Thank you so much for joining us, Sean. I wish we were uh, sitting next to each other at Fred Steck's house or at somewhere else, but that day will come again. And uh, I'm just so you know, intrigued, fascinated, admiring of the choices uh, that you've made with your life, some of which you talked about over the course of these last 45 minutes, and um, especially grateful for the choice to find ways to literally share your strength through my first crush and support share our strength in the No Kid Hungry campaign. So uh, I can't wait to see how this wine continues to thrive and prosper, and hopefully um, we'll we'll be able to do what we can do at our end to to be helpful. So thank you. Grateful, grateful for you and everyone there, Billy. Thank you. Uh, we've been talking with Sean Cassidy on Add Passion and Stir. Thanks for listening. Thanks to the team at Share Our Strength and the No Kid Hungry campaign that make this podcast possible. And of course, our producer, Paul Whittle at District Productive. You can go to addpassionandstir.com and find previous episodes. You can rate them and rank them and subscribe so that every week uh, you know who we'll be talking to next. Thanks for listening. I'm Billy Shore. Mm-hmm.